Good morning, everybody. I hope that uh, you had a wonderful start for many of you of our smaller group season. I had heard that there are many, many questions. Things like, is Saul saved? Or was Saul saved? And so if you want to know the definitive answer, you could listen to our podcast. And um, there's no guarantee you'll find one, but you could listen to our podcast. And so I thought maybe some of the questions that we might have, I'll ask Sam to perhaps answer some of those in the podcast. But I am so happy that there are even maybe some debating going on inside your smaller groups. I'd rather we spend our energies uh, in the Bible rather than thinking about other things. And so I really do enjoy that. And again, um, I hope that you have a wonderful small group season or you had a wonderful start to it. Uh, we are in the book of 1 Samuel. We are nearing the very end. And so there's only a few chapters left. And as we continue on its study, let us start with a prayer. Divine Spirit, illumine to us the words of the Lord. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old, familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise us to the heights of aspiration that is reached by the wings of the prophet. Lift us to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostle. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Amen. Uh, we will be going over 1 Samuel chapter 29. And if you would turn with me, we'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 11. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 235. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. When you have found it, please rise with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he has deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me this day. 
to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. So by now, you may have noticed, as we have been going through 1 Samuel, the writer goes back and forth, not just from characters. Yes, the characters. He goes back and forth from David to the next chapter, Samuel, back to David, and then Samuel. But not just from characters, but also timelines, almost seemingly vacillating between David's and Saul's stories, not even keeping the timelines linear and then leaving us with cliffhangers after every chapter, only to move on then to the other character. But if you have been with me so far, then you know that these separations are about pitting these two characters together, Saul and David, side by side, in similar circumstances, and the resulting contrast. All the while, there is this crescendo, there is this continuing of this buildup of Philistine threat until the end of this book at chapter 31. Chapter 29 is funny, uh, not so much in a ha-ha way, but in an astounding way. Here we see Achish take up most of the text in this chapter. He speaks more than anyone else, and as we study this chapter, we'll see that irony takes shape, but also how this is to hold as a teaching for the people of God, namely his church. This past week, a Dutch missionary known as Brother Andrew passed away. Uh, he was known as God's smuggler because during the Cold War, he would smuggle Bibles into communist countries I thought it was hilarious when I read his story about how he would attend communist conferences and give out Christian materials to the attendees. And perhaps we need a brother Andrew to give out Christian materials to the socialists in this country today. But he started a missionary organization called Open Doors, and he named it Open Doors because doors the doors are never closed since Jesus said, go out into all the world. And what this particular organization does is that they go to the persecuted church around the world and find how they can supply their needs, meaning they will go out around the world and they will give them their needs, whether it's food or clothing, but especially, especially Bibles 
and other Christian material. And their organization, they identify the most hostile and dangerous nations in the world for Christians. And this is the World Watch List. And in 2022, this year, in the World's Watch List, a nation took the top seat of this list as the nation where Christians would face the most extreme persecution. They unseated the previous number one. The previous number one was North Korea. North Korea would hold that number one seat for Christian persecution because of the nasty things they would do to Christians. They would torture, they would murder, they would put them through slave labor and slave camps. People are now, with technology, they're seeing through satellite imagery that there are slave camps all throughout the mountains with hundreds of thousands of people, and they are most likely, most of them, a lot of them, Christians. If they caught you as a Christian in North Korea, it wasn't only you that would suffer, but your entire family, your whole lineage, anybody related to you would be persecuted for as long as they lived. I had heard from a North Korean refugee when she saw the movie Hunger Games. It was very similar to that, where there are districts and the further you go away from the capital, the more poor and the more uh, <clears throat> uh, like uh, terrible they lived. And it was pretty similar there. And so you would be persecuted. Your whole family line would be persecuted for as long as they lived. North Korea lost that number one seat this year to Afghanistan. With the giving of the nation, or the giving over of the nation to the Taliban by us, the United States, Afghanistan is now the most dangerous place to live in the world if you are a Christian. Those Christians that may be still alive after the Taliban takeover, they have been tortured, they have fled, they are either refugees, or they are living, keeping their faith an utter secret. It's to places like these Brother Andrew would go, and he would smuggle Bibles. And while traveling and going over borders, <clears throat> he would call himself a teacher, and he would have these books with them, Christian material, especially Bibles. He would invariably come across border guards and soldiers. And while they would be searching his luggage, this is, this is what he would pray, and he writes this, this is what he would pray. Lord, in my luggage I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And Brother Andrew passed away this week at age 94. It would come to, as no surprise to me if David prayed a similar prayer while he was staying with Achish. And if, he, and if he did, it would seem as though God answered that prayer. Three times, Achish defends David in some sort of ironic twist, where you would think that Saul, his king, his kin, should try to save him or protect him, but rather Saul is trying to take his life, 
And Achish, an enemy, a sworn enemy against the Israelites, you see Achish defend David's life. Now they are at Aphek, the northernmost city of Philistine territory and on the border of Israel. They are about to attack and invade Shunem, something that we saw that had already, they had already succeeded in doing in the previous chapter. But this is before. It's like when a movie cuts back and says six months before. All five Philistine lords arrive and they gather at Aphek. And, and with every Philistine lord, there's an entourage that would follow a march with all their soldiers. And lo and behold, at the rear of Achish's entourage is no other than David. The other Philistine lords are flabbergasted. In verse 3, they say, what are these Hebrews doing here? But Achish isn't without a response. He says something like, what do you mean Hebrews? This is David, the servant of Saul, who defected to me and has been in my service all this time. The other lords would not have any of it, even though Achish would vouch for David. They bring up two arguments, essentially. One is of discretion in verse 5. He might turn against us in the middle of battle. You can't trust him. And the second is from history. Don't you see that even now they still sing songs about him? They still have songs about David. What better way to get back into Saul's good graces than to come back with the Philistine heads as appeasement? Don't be so naive, Achish. Achish goes back to David to deliver the bad news. David, you cannot ride with us. And Achish apologizes to David. David, who happens to be deceiving him, by the way, but he apologizes to David for not being able to take him to war against David's own people. David, on the other hand, expresses a disbelief and exasperation. How can this be? And the funny part here, as one commentator put it, is this. The deceived defends the deceiver and the relieved disputes the relief. And Achish, still using incredibly flattering words for David, calling him like an angel of God, he tells David that his hands are tied and he can't do anything about the situation. He sends David back to the land of the Philistines, probably Ziklag, where they left all their families. So that was the overview. That's the first point. The overview. So what can we learn from a chapter like this? Now I have a three additional points for us this morning. And that's God's ways are unexpected. God's ways are unsearchable. And God's ways are unswerving. God's ways are unexpected, unsearchable, unswerving. Unexpected. First, we should note that the word God's way or even mercy isn't mentioned or referred to once in this chapter. But perhaps when some things are so obvious, they need not be overtly mentioned. In fact, David doesn't even mention God once. But that doesn't mean God isn't mentioned. But David doesn't mention God once. Interestingly enough, it's Achish 
who mentions God. Twice, for that matter. Once in verse 6, he refers to him in the Hebrew. We read it as Lord. In verse 6, he refers to him as Yahweh. And in verse 9, as Elohim, which is another word for God. David may not have mentioned God, but God uses others, namely Achish in this scenario, to remind David that he is still there. God can still use even someone like your enemy to remind you that he is still there. Who would have thought that Achish would be the one to mention Yahweh in this chapter? Although not explicitly stated, Yahweh is nonetheless always with David, even in the mouths of his enemies. All these things aren't happenstance. It's not luck or chance. What we are being shown here is that in the undercurrent of the story, Yahweh is still moving, protecting, and leading. It should be the undertaking of the church then to recognize those times we did not expect God's mercy. We didn't expect to understand his ways, his mercies, but we received it. Case in point, I never thought I'd be a Jerseyan. All I knew about New Jersey, and I'm not being facetious in any way. I'm not trying to be smarmy or smart. All I knew about New Jersey was that there is this strip on I-95 where it smells like sulfur. That's all I knew about New Jersey. So when my friends and I would drive down I-95, like, all right, who did this? Whose fault is this? And they would tell me, actually, this part of I-95 smells like sulfur. And that's what I thought all of Jersey was like. I went on a blind date once, long time ago, when I was very young. I went on a blind date once where I thought the girl said, so I said, where are you guys from? Where, I'm, where are you from? She asked me where I was from. I thought the girl said that she was from Portly. And I didn't understand. I kid you not, I didn't understand Portly. So I asked, is that where fat people live? And so, so she thought I was making a joke, and I wasn't. I said, what kind of place is called Portly? But here I am now with a family near Portly, <laughs> serving a church that I love in a state that grows on you. I mean, the taxes could be lower, but it still grows on you. That was unexpected. I think for the most part, our current staff applied to be a part of the team, our team, even before we really searched for that part, except one, I was thinking about this, except one position, and that's the education director. Besides the education director, we really didn't search for any position that we have filled. But we did search for the education director, we searched for a long time, and we had all these applicants, and they, all of a sudden, they all just dropped, and we were just left with one, so we had no choice. <laughs> I kid you, of course. I'm kidding. Um, I love my fellow podcast host, uh, but I think even the associate position pastor, and I was trying to think, because it's been a while, I think the associate uh, pastor position wasn't even open until I talked with Pastor Paul and right now, I can't think of anybody that could have been a better associate pastor for us and for myself. 
And I think it's important to itemize our mercies this way. It's important to make note of the unexpected ways God's, God shows us the mercies that we receive through them. I would imagine that even counting them daily would rather surprise us. One might wonder why God would work in this way. Why are some of his mercies a surprise? Why are his ways unexpected? And we have a phrase we use in the English language that I like. It's pleasantly surprised. To be pleasantly surprised is to find something small and unexpected, but to come to a true appreciation of what is found. I was pleasantly surprised. For example, I was pleasantly surprised when I found out that my bank made an error in my favor and I collected $200. Unfortunately, it was $200 in Monopoly money, but I was still pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised when I went and I had a craving for a Slurpee but I had gone on July 11th and that Slurpee was free. I was pleasantly surprised when one of our staffers can get us nice discounts on Christian books. That one is real. We have wordage like that, but the unexpected ways of God, the mercies that we receive through that, go from not just small, pleasantly surprised, they go from small to great. And in David's situation, was it not a great mercy that he received? So why would God work in such a way? Well, I don't know for sure in every situation, but I do know what kind of people we are. We like pleasant surprises. We like to be surprised in relationships and courtships. And it's almost as if the Lord is showing us he is pursuing us with his mercies. The Word of God even shows us, even from the very beginning, when Adam sinned, God is the one that pursued Adam first. He says, where are you? And in Genesis 3, 8-9, it says that the Lord called to the man, where are you? Who pursued first? It was God. All the way to Jesus, in Luke 19:10 where Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There is beauty found in this pursuit, and there is joy for those that are found. And the response of those that have been found should be righteous worship. God's ways are unsearchable. How does God save David? It may seem funny to us, but to the Philistine lords, this was a very serious matter. They were incredulous. How can you bring those Hebrews here? Achish was set on taking David into war with him, but the commanders of the Philistines refused to go out with David and his men. David then is saved by the Philistine lords. They didn't want to save David, but they did it unwittingly. By denying David a spot in their armies, they became David's unintentional saviors. So God uses the Philistines as instruments of his salvation. Why did God choose to save David this way? Why not another way? 
And then to that, there is another question then that you can ask in response. Who can counsel God on his plans? In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 14, it says this, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one can counsel God. Does this mean that then God will save me in this exact same manner that we see here in the text? No, of course not. Don't expect God to clean up a mess that you've made in the same manner as he did David. That's not what the text is teaching. It's showing us that God makes fools out of wise men and makes wise men into fools. God can make an enemy serve us just as a friend would. And indeed, you see the truth of Psalm 23, where God indeed does prepare a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. I read this one story that I thought was cute. There is a children's book that a pastor was reading, so he put it in this account that he was reading this children's book, and this is what it said. A, ch a Christian woman, alone and out of food, was telling her plight to her heavenly father and asking for her daily bread. Somehow a neighbor, an agnostic or an atheist, overheard the woman praying and decided it was time for a little divine fun. He went and purchased two loaves of bread and left them at her door. Upon discovering them, the woman burst into a devout and grateful prayer of praise. But her neighbor accosted her to demythologize, demythologize, excuse me, the incident, informing her that he had happened to hear her praying, that he brought the he bought the bread, and he had placed it on her step. It was not then God who had answered her prayer, but the lady was armed. Oh yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer even though he used the devil to do it. Many times we don't know exactly the way God will reveal his mercies. We don't know his ways. But when it is revealed, we ought to respond in proper worship. The Apostle Paul turns God's unsearchable ways into worship in Romans 11.33. This is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is the Apostle Paul who had lived a life killing Christians, going against as much as he could God's ways until God had found him and God completely changed him. God's ways are unswerving. Once Achish releases David, David responds then with disappointment and anger that he cannot go into the battlefield with him. 
if you're listening to this, imagine you were one of David's men and you were listening to this, you might have started, you might start to get a little nervous the more David would talk. And maybe it would even sound like David is now on this rant, this tirade. He's like, how can you not take me? And then you might want to, you might, you might have been tempted just to go, shh, just let it go, bro. David was this close to messing this up, the perfect getaway. Why is he complaining? But a reader must connect chapter 29 with 27. I've I've already mentioned that David's reason for going into the Philistine area wasn't probably the best and wise decision. It was probably not a decision that was encompassed entirely of faith. But now when you place these two chapters together, we see God's way shine, God's mercy being brilliant. We see that God's mercy pursues his servants even though they fail, even though they flip-flop, even though they are weak. God's mercy is stronger than what we can ever come up with. His patience is not short, and his mercy does not end, just because we choose something not good, not perfect. Some of us, we have this notion that if I do something wrong, God will completely abandon me. But is that the God that we see here, the God of David? Do you see that David was caught in the making, uh, in his own making, a trap? Imagine David walking down, and you're one of his men, and you are marching down with thousands and thousands of the enemy. And what you are to do is to fight alongside the enemy to kill your own people. Imagine what might be going through your head, the cold sweat just coming down your brow, the amount of tums that you're eating. Imagine how stressed you might be. But does God let him stay in the muck that he had made for himself? The answer is no. God can save, and his mercy even penetrates in the darkness of the enemies. God who saved Saul, God God who saved David from Saul again and again, this time saves David from himself. And so God's mercy is inexhaustible, and it does not change. I think we as Christians should take this to heart. Some of us, perhaps a lot of us, we would depend on our own cleverness, our own ability to assess the situation and saying, this is the way. This is how we will handle our current circumstance, and we are confident. And then after it it proves to be disastrous, it's all wrong, it's all wrong, but I am so invested, 
And I remember learning in business one-on-one that I shouldn't continue to put into sunk costs, but I can't help it. I continue to pour into this wrong decision. For years, I do this. Am I at the end of my rope? And you see here, God's mercy shine through. He doesn't leave you in your own foolishness. Your mistakes does not cancel out his mercy. It is still full. It is still close. And it still pursues you. In Psalm 23, verse 6, it says, Surely love and goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That follow is a pursuit. Surely God's mercies will run after me and chase after me. As far as I am running, God's mercy is chasing after you, is what David realizes in Psalm 23. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's mistakes do not cancel out Yahweh's deliverance. And so David is saved not through his own intellect or his own savvy or his own conniving, but he is saved through God's mercy. There is a contrast that is to be noted between the ends of chapter 28 and the end of chapter 29 today. It is pretty significant in my opinion because chapters 30 and 31 are the final contrast between David and Saul. But this is how it ends and goes into the final contrast between David in chapter 30 and Saul in chapter 31. In the end of chapter 28, after Saul visits the witch in Endor, he goes out into the night. And the end of chapter 29, after David receives God's mercy, he walks away in the morning. Saul at night, David in the morning. And it reminds us of the psalm in Psalm 30, where it says, Weeping might be for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We can be, I think we ought to be, but many times we are confounded by his mercy. If you have received his mercy, you have no idea why you received it. You just know that you did. And we can be even confounded to the degree where we can even get angry. Look at Jonah. Jonah was upset. He was confounded. He was upset at God's mercy. I am an Israelite. I am your prophet. And you're telling me to go to Nineveh, the enemies of God, the people that hate you, the people that practice detestable things in your sight. And you're telling me that there is a way to salvation, that you could repent and you would be saved? I don't like that. And so Jonah disobeys. Why does Jonah disobey God? Because he is confounded by God's mercy. God's mercy is astounding. If we sit down and think about it, it is incredible. And that is all to say God's mercy is truly great. Praise the Lord for his mercy. Praise the Lord that he shows his people this incredible mercy that we receive. Let's pray. 
God, we ultimately thank you for the mercy that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ, where when he was raised from death to life, we also in faith have been promised a new life with you. Now help us to remember that incredible grace along with the grace that you show us daily, where where we even can be tripped up, mixed up, we can stumble with our own failures. But Lord, we see that your mercy proves greater than that. And we thank you, Lord, for the incredible grace that you've given us through our Lord and Savior, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's take this time to pray. And as we have read, let us try to remember, reflect, and respond to the mercies God has given us in prayer, in thanksgiving, and in worship. So let's pray.